Bladen was falling behind his regiment, but when Sheridan cried out, Never mind, my man, there's no harm done, the soldier, although with a bullet in his brain, went forward with his fighting comrades till he fell dead. Two great generals let us now return to Grant. After remaining near Petersburg all winter, in the spring of 1865 he pressed so hard upon the Confederate Army that Lee had to leave Richmond and move rapidly westward in order to escape capture. For a week Grant closely followed Lee's troops, who were almost starving, all they had to eat was parched corn and green shoots of trees, and the outlook was so dark that many had deserted and started for home. There was but one thing left for Lee to do, that was to give up the struggle for he knew the southern cause was hopeless. An interview, therefore, was arranged with Grant. It was held on Sunday morning, April 9th, in a house standing in the little village of Appomattox Courthouse. Grant writes in his personal memoirs, I was without a sword, as I usually was when on horseback on the field, and wore a soldier's blouse for a coat, with the shoulder straps of my rank to indicate to the army who I was. General Lee was dressed in a full uniform, which was entirely new and was wearing a sword of considerable value very likely the sword which had been presented by the state of Virginia, in my rough traveling suit, the uniform of a private with the straps of a lieutenant general, I must have contrasted very strangely with a man so handsomely dressed, six feet tall, and of faultless form, the result of the interview was the surrender of General Lee and his army, when this took place General Grant showed clearly his great kindness of heart and his delicate feeling, he issued orders that all the Confederates who owned horses and mules should be allowed to take them home. They will need them for the spring plowing, he said. He also had abundant food at once sent to the hungry Confederate soldiers. Never did General Grant appear more truly great than on the occasion of Lee's surrender. He was indeed a remarkable man in many ways. While in the army he seemed to have wonderful powers of endurance. He said of himself, whether I slept on the ground or in a tent. Whether I slept one hour or ten in the twenty-four, whether I had one meal or three, or none, made no difference. I would lie down and sleep in the rain without caring. This, as you remember, he did at Pittsburgh Landing, yet his appearance did not indicate robust health. He was only five feet eight inches tall, round-shouldered, and not at all military in bearing or walk, but his brown hair, blue eyes, and musical voice gave a pleasing impression. He was of a sunny disposition and of singularly pure mind. Never in his life was he known to speak an unclean word or tell an objectionable story. In manner he was quiet and simple, and yet he was always ready for the severest ordeal he might have to face. While the two great commanders, Grant and Lee, were much alike in personal appearance, they had certain qualities in common, for they were both simple-hearted and frank and men of deep and tender feelings. April 9th was a sad day for General Lee as he stepped out of the door of the house where the terms of surrender had been agreed upon and stood in silence, waiting for his horse to be brought to him. He clasped his hands together as if in deep pain and looked far away into the distance. Then, mounting his steed, he rode back to the Confederate camp, where his officers and men awaited his coming. On his approach they crowded about their beloved chief in their eagerness to touch him, or even his horse, looking upon his veteran soldiers for the last time. Lee said, with saddened voice, we have fought through the war together, I have done the best I could for you. My heart is too full to say more. Then he silently rode off to his tent. These simple, heartfelt words to his children, as he called his soldiers, were like the man who spoke them. For during the entire war he was always simple in his habits, 
Rarely did he leave his tent to sleep in a house, and often his diet consisted of salted cabbage only. He thought it a luxury to have sweet potatoes and buttermilk. The gentleness and kindness of General Lee was seen also in his fondness for animals. When the war was over his iron-gray horse, Traveler, which had been his faithful companion throughout the struggle, was very dear to him. Often, when entering the gate on returning to his house, he would turn aside to stroke the noble creature, and often the two wandered forth into the mountains, companions to the last. Within a year after the close of the war General Lee was elected president of Washington College, at Lexington, Virginia now called Washington and Lee University, there he remained until his death. In 1870, his countrymen, in all sections of the Union, think of him as a distinguished general and a high-minded gentleman. Three years after the close of the war 1868 General Grant was elected President of the United States and served two terms. Upon retiring from the presidency, he made a tour around the world, a more unusual thing in those days than now. He was everywhere received, by rulers and people alike, with marked honor and distinction. His last days were full of suffering from an illness which proved a worse enemy than ever he had found on the field of battle. After nine months of brave struggle, he died on July 23, 1885. Undoubtedly he was one of the ablest generals of history. The war, in which these two distinguished commanders had led opposing sides, had cost the nation not only thousands of men, the vast majority in the prime of their young manhood, but millions of dollars. But it had two striking results. It preserved the Union, for it was now clear that no state could secede at will, and it put an end to slavery. The Emancipation Proclamation had set free only those slaves in the states and parts of states which were under the control of Union armies, but after the war the 13th Amendment set free all the slaves in all the states in the Union for all time. These were the benefits purchased by the terrible sacrifice of life. If we count those who were slain on the field of battle and those who died from wounds, disease, and suffering in wretched prisons, the loss of men was equal to 700 a day during the four long years of the war. When it was over, a wave of intense relief swept over the country. In many homes were glad reunions, in others, saddened memories, but at least a united nation was cause for a new hope, and a patriotism which in time was to bind all sections into closer union. Some things to think about. 1. Tell what you can about Lincoln's early life. What kind of boy was he? 2. What was the Emancipation Proclamation? Why did not Lincoln set the slaves free when he became president? What do you admire about him? 3. Why did Lee go with Virginia when the state seceded? 4. Tell as much as you can about Lee, Jackson, Stuart, Sherman, and Sheridan. 5. What kind of boy was Grant? What kind of man? What do you admire about him? 6. What were some of the important results of the Civil War? 7. When did this war begin? And when did it end? 8. Are you locating every event upon the map? Chapter XVII for great industries caught thus far we have been considering mainly the men engaged in exploration, in invention, or in the great national struggles through which our country has passed. But while only a small fraction of the people, as a rule, take an active and prominent part in the stirring events of history, many more work hard and faithfully to furnish all with food, clothing, and other things needful in everyday living. What these many laborers accomplish in the fields of industry, therefore, has a most important bearing upon the life and work of men, leaders and followers alike, in other fields of action. With this thought in mind, let us take a brief glance at a few of our great industries. First, go with me in thought to the South, where the cotton, 
from which we make much of our clothing, is raised, owing to the favorable climate of the southern states, it being warm and moist, the United States produces more cotton and cotton of a better quality than any other country in the world, no crop, it is said, is so beautiful as growing cotton, the plants are low, with dark green leaves, the flowers, which are yellow at first, changing by degrees to a white, and then to deep pink, the cotton fields look like great flower gardens, as the blossoms die they are replaced by the young bowls, or pods, which contain the seeds, from the seeds grow long vegetable hairs, which form white locks in the pods, these fibers are the cotton, when the pods become ripe and open, the cotton bursts out and covers them with a puff of soft, white down, the height of the picking season is in October, as no satisfactory machine for picking cotton has been invented, it is usually done by hand, and negroes for the most part are employed, lines of pickers pass between the rows, gathering the down and crowding it into a wide mouth sacks hanging from their shoulders or waists, at the ends of the rows are great baskets, into which the sacks are emptied, and then the cotton is loaded into a wagons which carry it to the gin house, if damp, the cotton is dried in the sun, the saw teeth of the cotton gin, as we have seen, separate the cotton fiber from the seeds, then the cotton is pressed down by machine presses and packed into bales, each usually containing 500 pounds, after which it is sent to the factory, various processes are employed to free the cotton from dirt and to loosen the lumps, when it is cleaned, it is rolled out into thin sheets and taken to the carding machine, this, with other machines, prepares the cotton to be spun into a yarn, which is wound off on large reels, the yarn is then ready to be either twisted into thread or woven into cloth on the great looms, the United States produces an average of 11 million bales of cotton every year, and this is nearly 67% of the production of the whole world, cotton is now the second crop in the United States, the first being Indian corn, wheat another great industry is the growing of wheat, which is the foundation of much of our food, wheat is a very important grain and is extensively cultivated, there are a great many varieties, the two main kinds found in the United States being the large kernel winter wheat, grown in the east, and the hard spring wheat, the best for flour making, which is grown in the west, Minnesota is the largest wheat producing state, and I will ask you to go in thought with me to that middle west region, the farms there are very level, and also highly productive, the big bonanza farms, as they are called, range in size from 2,000 to 10,000 acres, some of these are so large that even on level ground one cannot look entirely across them so large, indeed, that laborers working at opposite ends do not see one another for months at a time, during the planting and harvesting seasons temporary laborers come from all over the country, they are well housed and well fed, the farms are divided into sections, and each section has its own lodging house, dining hall, barns, and so on, even then, dinner is carried to the workers in the field, because they are often a mile or two from the dining hall, the height of the harvest season is at the end of July, in the autumn, after the wheat has been harvested, the straw is burned and the land is plowed, in the following April when the soil is dry enough to harrow, the seeds, after being carefully selected and thoroughly cleaned, are planted, for the harvesting a great deal of new machinery is purchased every year, one of these huge machines can cut and stack in one day the grain from a hundred acres of land, then the grain is threshed at once in the field, before the rain can do it harm, through the spout of the thresher the grain falls into the box wagon, which carries it to the grain elevator, or building for storing grain, here it remains until it is loaded automatically into the cars, 
which take it to the great elevator centers. The wheat is not touched by hands from the time it passes into the thresher until it reaches private kitchens in the form of flour. The great elevator centers are Duluth, St. Paul, Minneapolis, Chicago, and Buffalo. Some elevators in these centers can store as much as a million or more bushels each. They are built of steel and equipped with steam power or electricity. The wheat is taken from grain-laden vessels or cars, carried up into the elevator, and deposited in various bins, according to its grade. On the opposite side of the elevator the wheat is reloaded into cars or canal boats. In 1914 the United States produced 930 million bushels, or between one-fourth and one-fifth of all the wheat produced in the world. Cattle raising the third great industry is that of cattle raising. To find the ranches we will go a little farther west, perhaps to Kansas, a wide belt stretching westward from the 100th meridian to the foothills of the Rocky Mountains is arid land. It includes parts of Texas, Kansas, Nebraska, the Dakotas, Montana, Wyoming, and Colorado. Although the rainfall here is mostly too light to grow corn and wheat without irrigation, these dry plains have sufficient growth to support great herds of sheep and cattle and supply us with a large part of our beef. Cattle by the hundred thousand feet on these vast infant regions, on the great ranches of this belt, which, we are told, are fast disappearing. There are two important round UPS of the cattle every year. Between times they roam three over vast areas of land. In the spring they are driven slowly toward a central point. Then the calves are branded, or marked by a hot iron, with the owner's special brand. These brands are registered and are recognized by law. This is done in order that each owner may be certain of his own cattle. In July or August the cattle are rounded up again, and this time the mature and fat animals are selected that they may be driven to the shipping station on the railroad and loaded on the cars. The journey to the stockyards often requires from four to seven days. Once in about 30 hours the cattle are released from the cars in order to be fed and watered. Then the journey begins again. At the stockyards the cattle are loaded and driven into pens. From there the fat steers and cows are sent directly to market. The lean ones go to farmers in the Middle West who make a specialty of fattening them for market, doing it in a few weeks. In the year 1910 there were 96,658,000 cattle in the United States. This means that there was one for every human being in the whole country. But the number of beef cattle is decreasing, as the larger ranches where they graze are disappearing, as we have said, and are being divided into small farms. Coal by means of these three industries cotton, wheat, and cattle we are provided with food and clothing, but besides these necessaries, we must have fuel, we need it both for heat in our households and for running most of our engines in factories and on trains, our chief fuel is coal, to see coal mining, western Pennsylvania is a good place for us to visit, were you to go into a mine there you might easily imagine yourself in a different world. In descending the shaft you suddenly become aware that you are cut off from beautiful sunlight and fresh air. You find that to supply these everyday benefits, which you have come to accept as commonplace, there are ventilating machines working to bring down the fresh air from above, and portable lamps, which will not cause explosion, to supply light, and that, where there is water, provision has been made for drainage. The walls of the mine, also, have to be strongly supported in order that they may not fall and crush the workers or fill up the shaft. In deep shaft mines, coal is carried to the surface by cages hoisted through the shaft. It is sorted and cleaned above ground. One of the largest uses of coal is found in the factories where numerous articles of iron and steel are made. 
The world of industry depends so much upon iron that it is called the metal of civilization. The iron and coal industries are closely related, for coal is used to make iron into steel. If you stay in Pennsylvania you may catch a glimpse of the process by which iron is made usable. As it comes from the mine it is not pure, but is mixed with ore from which it must be separated. In the regions of iron mines you will see towering aloft here and there huge chimneys, or blast furnaces, at times sending forth great clouds of black smoke and at times lighting the sky with the lurid glow of flames. In these big blast furnaces, the iron ore and coal are piled in layers. Then a very hot fire is made, so hot that the iron melts and runs down into molds of sand, where it is collected. This process is called smelting. The iron thus obtained, though pure, is not hard enough for most purposes. It must be made into steel. Steel, you understand, is iron which has again been melted and combined with a small amount of carbon to harden it. At first this was an expensive process, but during the last century ways of making steel were discovered which greatly lowered its cost. As a result, steel took the place of iron in many ways the most important being in the manufacture of rails for our railroad systems. Since steel rails are stronger than iron, they make it possible to use larger locomotives and heavier trains, and permit a much higher rate of speed and more bulky traffic. All this means, as you can easily see, cheaper and more rapid transportation, which is so important in all our industrial life. Steel has an extensive use, also, in the structure of bridges, of large buildings, of steamships and war vessels, as well as in the making of heating equipment, tools, household utensils, and hundreds of other articles which we are constantly using in our daily life. If you should write down all the uses for this metal which you can think of, you would be surprised at the length of your list. These four great industries give us a little idea of how men make use of the products of the farm, the mine, and the factory in supplying human needs. Each fulfills its place, and we are dependent upon all. That means that we are all dependent upon one another. There would be little in life for anyone if he were to do without all that others have done for him. There is something which each member of a community can do to make life better for others. If he does this willingly and well, he company operates with his fellow men and assists in the great upbuilding of the nation. And the amount of service the man or woman, boy or girl can render those about him is the measure of his worth to his neighborhood, his state, or his country. It is good for us to ask ourselves this question, how can I be helpful in the community where I live, which has done so much for me. If we try to give faithful service, working cheerfully with others, we are truly patriotic. Are you a patriot? Some things to think about one. What are the four great industries taken up in this chapter? Can you tell in what ways each of these is of special value to us? 2. Use your map in locating the cotton region, the wheat growing region the cattle-raising region. 3. In what ways are coal, iron, and steel especially full? 4. How are we all dependent upon one another? How may we be truly patriotic? The end.